in this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been confronting, one of the things he's been doing is confronting professing believers who they're not taking their Christian lives very seriously. It wasn't the case for all of the Corinthians, but it seems to be the case for many of them. And in today's text, he warns that some of them may not be true believers even, may be operating out of a, a false assurance, thinking that they have been saved and are being saved and will be saved, and they're not. They're actually facing disqualification at the end of their race. Disqualification because they lack true faith in Christ. And so Paul is confronting them continually, and he does again today. And he will also, in today's text, encourage another set of people who were in Corinth, and I'm sure are here today, and that is believers, true believers, with little assurance. Or maybe even no assurance. He has a word for you too. Think of the Christian life as a boat that is passing through a narrow channel of water with cliffs on either side. And there are a lot of things about the Christian life where you are this ship going through this narrow channel of water and on either side of you there is danger. And you could crash into this cliff on one side or you could, to avoid crashing into that cliff, to to overcorrect and then find yourself crashing into the other cliff. And much of the Christian life is like that. So I want you to think and light of the last text we looked at together at the end of chapter 9, and then this text today, I want you to think of two cliffs, one on either side of the Christian, and one is presumption, and the other is despair. Some of you have been in both places, or maybe you're in one of those places today. Presumption, or self-confidence, Or despair on the other side. Or maybe even self-loathing on the other side. And here's the deal and why I bring it up. A text like the one we looked at last time we were together, two weeks ago. Chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. A text like that which sharply calls for work and effort. It's not saying that you're saved by your work. It's not saying that you're saved only if you put in the effort. It's not saying that this is in and of yourselves. It's not saying any of that. But it is in no uncertain terms. It is challenging Christians to work in their Christian life. It is challenging lazy Christians to put in more effort. And the way Paul did that was by bringing up an athlete who is training for Olympic-type games and saying, treat your Christian life the way that athlete treats that race and run the race to win. 
So when you come into texts like that in the Bible that challenge you sharply like that, to work harder, to put in more effort, there are two cliffs that you can easily crash into. The one is to look at a text like that and to say, I can do that. It's presumption. And the other is to say, I can't do that. Despair. The one cliff is nailed it. That's how I'm running. I see that person's sin. I read in a text like today about Israel's sin. That's not me. It used to be me or it never was me. But it's not me now. I'm good. I've got this. And you leave a text like that feeling pretty good about yourself. That's presumption. And then the other side is despair. The other side here is run in such a way as to win the prize and you're tripping every 10 feet. And you're stumbling. You got hurdles you're not clearing. Your legs feel like they're full of lead spiritually. For some of you, it's felt like that for a long time. And you despair. I know I heard from some of you this week. Most of you, if not all of you, will be on one of those cliffs at one point or another because you are proud. And you're proud because you're a human being. And you have pride underneath and beneath and behind so much of what you do. And so you, by nature, just like me, you consider yourself whether positively or negatively, more than God. And if you consider yourself more than God and it's positive, you'll get presumptuous. And if you consider yourself more than God negatively, you'll end up in despair. So there's a, there's a remedy for that. And there is a plan for you. And Paul knows what you're thinking after you hear him chew you out in the dugout of chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And that's what we have. In our text today. So. Obviously we need God's help. Now. Because if you're like me. You read that text. You didn't hear all that. You didn't see all that. So we need God to take this next hour or so. And open our eyes. And open our ears and hearts. So that we can see. What he has for us. So let's pray together. Father in heaven. We ask that you would work in us now. Use your word. You say it's a sword. It's living and active. So we ask that your spirit would pick up that sword, which is your word, and that he would work in us and will in us according to your good pleasure. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
If you haven't already, if you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 900. We'll begin in verses 1 through 4. In these opening four verses, Paul wants the Corinthians to remember their fathers, he says. And by fathers, he means ancient Israel in the wilderness. So he has the people of Israel in mind at a specific time while they were wandering in the wilderness. So for those of you that don't know the history, Israel, they found themselves in the wilderness after God miraculously rescued them from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And you can read about that in the book of Exodus. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. We'll work through some details, but here is the main point of these four verses. Israel in the wilderness was extraordinarily privileged. They were blessed by God in ways that no other people on earth were blessed. And so Paul lists the privileges. Let's look at them. They were all under a cloud. Now, you've been under clouds before. This is very different. A special cloud. It was a cloud by day, and it was a pillar of fire by night. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So to be in the wilderness and to be under this cloud was to be guided by God Himself. What a privilege. Also, they all passed through the sea. And this was probably the most memorable experience the Israelites had in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 through 26. I read this and foolishly thought at first that I would lay out for you how Israel passed through the Red Sea, thinking that I could say it more vividly than the Bible does. And so I wrote up my recollection of what happened. I thought, oh, this is good. And I capture the drama so that we understand what a privilege this was. And then, then, that was my mistake. Then I went to Exodus chapter 14 and said, oh, man, this is way better. Exodus 14, verses 21 through 26. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So God parted 
the waters of the Red Sea so that the people of God could cross along the seabed and escape their enemies. They were rescued by God Himself. Not through some other means or some other channel that could be attributed to God, that just God showed up and took an ocean and split it. So God Himself rescued His people. What a privilege. Additionally, they all ate spiritual food. That doesn't mean it wasn't real food. It was supernatural food. It was food that God sent down from heaven. Not like a quail, not like a dove, something totally different. Exodus 16, verses 13 through 15. In the morning, so they woke up, Israel in the wilderness. They woke up and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. There's nothing spectacular about that. Most mornings, if we have a lawn in the morning, we will see dew. And when the dew had gone up, when it had dried up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. What is this? When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. It was called manna, and God provided it for 40 years. For 40 years, so that Israel in the wilderness was provided with food by God himself. What a privilege. Furthermore, they all drank the same spiritual drink. Again, this doesn't mean it was some spiritual water, like it wasn't real water. It was supernatural. It was directly from God, and you can read about it in Exodus 17, verse 6 and 7. Behold, God said, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And then Paul writes this at the end of verse 4. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Christ was himself with Israel in the wilderness, providing for their needs. It is very clear, isn't it? What Paul is saying here, all of Israel in the wilderness, he uses that word over and over again, all, 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 all of Israel in the wilderness, every last one of them was exceedingly blessed. They were guided by God to safety. They were saved by God from their enemies. For the rest of their wandering, God made sure that they had food to eat and water to drink Israel in the wilderness was a people extraordinarily privileged by God. Which makes the declaration of verse 5 unexpected. Nevertheless, in other words, contrary to what you might expect, with most of them, God was not pleased. 
for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So God loved them, and God was kind to them, and God took care of them, and yet God was not pleased with them. That's verses 1 through 5. You might assume that behind God's goodness to Israel was pleasure in Israel. That is a fair assumption. If I am good to you, you might assume that I am pleased with you. And that's a good thing to assume. So when you read this and you see how kind God is, you may assume that God was pleased with them. But that is the very assumption that Paul is correcting here. Nevertheless, he says, in spite of all that goodness and kindness, don't mistake that, God was not pleased with most of them. So one more thing to note here. It doesn't say that God was displeased with all of them. He was kind to all of them. It says he was displeased with most of them. And by most of them, we learn this in Numbers chapter 26, verses 64 through 65. Because you might wonder, what does most mean? I mean, technically, that could mean that God was not pleased with 51% of them. But pleased with 49%. Well, in Numbers chapter 24, we learn that it was two. Two. Caleb and Joshua. Most that he was displeased with was everyone else. That's two out of two million. One million nine hundred and ninety nine thousand. Nine hundred and ninety eight. That God was not pleased with. God was not pleased with most of them. And we know this, the text says, for they were overthrown. And that word overthrown means they were struck down and spread out over the wilderness. So Israel in the wilderness was extraordinarily privileged. And yet God was not pleased with them. And so they were ultimately destroyed. They were disqualified. Remember the verses before. They were disqualified. That is Paul's point in these first five verses. So let's keep reading. Let's find out why God was so displeased with these people. We're told in verses 6 through 10. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These are reasons why God was displeased with them. They desired evil, verse 6, which is probably a reference to their desire to actually be back in slavery in Egypt because the weather was nicer and there were more food options. That's what they said, Numbers chapter 11. The people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, 
the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, and the slavery. No mention of slavery, but now they said our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Just manna. Just bread that fell from heaven. They were also idolaters, verse 7, which is referring specifically to the golden calf they made for worship in Exodus 32. Here are verses 4 through 6. He received, this was Aaron, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And then here's the verse that Paul quotes in our text. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play like nothing was wrong. But they were idolaters as well. Verse eight. Another reason that God was displeased with them, they indulged in sexual immorality, which means that they lived outside God's bounds. Of sexual design and purity, verse nine. Says they put Christ to the test, which means that they took the love and grace of God for granted, taking advantage of Christ's patience and kindness and look to get away with as much immorality as possible they tested christ in his kindness and his grace and his patience and then paul concludes this list of reason in verse 10 with grumbling which may not seem like a big deal to us it's often overlooked or excused or justified grumbling is a very big deal to god Grumbling is a very big deal to God. It is the opposite of gratitude, grumbling is. It is the opposite of gratitude, which should be the very essence of a relationship with God. So these are reasons why God was displeased with Israel in the wilderness. And so we're told God destroyed them. They were overthrown in the wilderness, verse 5. 23,000 died in a single day, verse 8, which is referring to Numbers 25, 9. Verse 9, they were destroyed by serpents, which is referring to Numbers 21, 5, and 6. And verse 10, some were destroyed by the destroyer. And the destroyer is the same angel of death that was active during the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. So that is 10 verses now, 10 verses of our text this morning, and here is what they say, Israel in the wilderness was extraordinarily privileged by God, and yet God was not pleased with them, and so they were ultimately destroyed. Or to say that another way. Though Israel in the wilderness was the object of God's kindness, they were not the object of God's pleasure. Let me say that one more time. It's just summarizing what we've learned in these first ten verses. Though Israel in the wilderness was the object of God's kindness, they were not the object 
of God's pleasure. God was good to them, but he was not happy with them. God was kind to them, and God was angry with them. Now, why is Paul telling us this? And that's what he's saying, and that's what it means, but what does it mean to us? What's his purpose in giving us this example? Well, it's as if Paul anticipates that question because he tells us the why in verse 6 and again in verse 11. Here's why Paul is telling us about Israel in the wilderness and how they were extraordinary, privileged, and yet God was not pleased with them. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. In verse 11, you'll hear the same word in both these verses. Now these things happened to them as an example. There's that word twice. But they were written down for our instruction. So it was an example to those then, and then it was written down so it would be an example to us today. They were written down for our instruction. This is us on whom the end of the ages has come. So he's reminding us of Israel in the wilderness to be an example to us. Well, an example to learn what? Some of you might be working that out in your minds already. You should be working that out in your minds already. But we want to know the lesson that we're supposed to learn from this example. And that's what we have in verse 12. Which begins with the dead giveaway word, therefore. Therefore. Therefore tells us that what we are about to be exhorted to do is grounded in the example before. Here's the example, therefore, and here's his exhortation. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's what we're to take. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Well, let me read you a couple other places in the New Testament that use this word stand. They're both used by Paul. So we get an idea of how he uses this Greek word and what he means. The first one is in Romans 5.2. Listen for the word stand. And we're going to come back to our verse. Through him, that is through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there, Paul is describing a Christian who is standing by faith in grace. A Christian who is standing by faith in grace. Paul also uses the word later in this letter, 1 Corinthians. 
Here it is in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So here's what Paul is saying. Our understanding now of this word stand, here is what Paul is saying. Israel in the wilderness was the object of God's kindness. So are all of you, by the way. Some of you more than others. Israel in the wilderness was the object of God's kindness. And so they thought or presumed they were standing safely and securely before God, but they were not. Therefore, if you think that you stand, like Israel thought that they stood, take heed lest you fall. That's the connection. Israel is the example, and that's the exhortation. Israel in the wilderness was the object of God's kindness. Well, if God is good to me and if God is kind to me and if things are going well for me, that must mean He loves me and is pleased with me and everything's okay. They were extraordinarily privileged. So they thought they were standing safely and securely before God. Therefore, if you here today, if you think that you stand like Israel thought that they stood, you better take heed. That means be warned. Take heed lest you fall, lest you end up disqualified the way Israel did. This verse is a warning against one of those cliffs. Presumption. It is a warning against false assurance. Think about the text just before this at the end of chapter 9. Some of these Corinthians were unknowingly facing disqualification at the end of the race. And so Paul's exhortation to them and to us is take heed lest your assurance be a false assurance. Assurance, very basically speaking, what is this? Assurance is being certain that God has saved you from your sin and will keep you for all eternity. That's a way to define assurance. Assurance is being certain that God has saved me from my sin and He will never let me go. He will never leave me or never forsake me. He has saved me from my sin and will keep me for all eternity. And some, like most of Israel in the wilderness and some in Corinth, they had a false assurance. They, they were certain that they were saved, but they were not. They were heading for disqualification. And so Paul's warning to us is, take heed. Take heed, lest your assurance be false. So whatever was wrong with Israel, I don't want to be wrong with me. 
whatever deficiency there was in Israel, I don't want to be deficient in me. Whatever Israel was lacking, I don't want to be lacking in me. Whatever Israel overlooked, I don't want to overlook. So what was wrong with Israel in the wilderness? Paul just told us they had evil desires. There was sexual immorality. They tested God and grumbled. And some of you may read that list and think, again, okay, I'm good. And some of you may read that and think, I, I, I commit those and more. So here's what we have to understand at this point. Those behaviors were not Israel's biggest problem. That bad behavior, and it was bad. was not Israel in the wilderness's ultimate problem. There was a problem beneath that problem that was the real problem. And there's a problem beneath your problem, and that's the real problem. So hang with me. Let me show you Israel's bigger problem with some New Testament commentary. Trying to understand the Old Testament, one of the best things to do is go to the New Testament and read what the New Testament says this Old Testament means. And thankfully, we have that with our text today. So I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. If you're taking notes, you've got to write these two down. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, and then Romans chapter 11, verse 20. And both Paul and the author of Hebrews, they are looking back in these texts they're looking back to this very people in the wilderness, and they are pointing out their deeper problem, the very reason their assurance was false. Are you with me? We want to know what he says that bigger problem was that was leading to their false assurance that I don't want to have. First, here's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. For who were those who heard... And yet rebelled. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So he's talking about the people in our text, right? That's our people here. Those who left Egypt to wander in the wilderness. Those who heard and yet rebelled. Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not... With those who sinned. Okay, so far I'm thinking, okay, so sin, the behavior is the problem. Whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? There it is again. It's the bad behavior, right? That's the big problem. Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief he does not say they were unable to enter because of their bad behavior unbelief unbelief and now here's Paul in Romans eleven twenty. that is true now, Paul is affirming that some of the people of Israel, they were punished and they were cut off by God. That's what we're looking at in our text today. And then he says, why, in Romans eleven twenty, 20. They were broken off 
Because of their, it does not say, if you're not looking with me, bad behavior. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And now here's the difference between those who did not believe and were cut off. But you, Romans 11.20, but you stand, and that's the same word stand that's in our text, but you stand fast through faith. The opposite of unbelief is standing fast through faith. So answer the question. What was Israel's biggest problem in the wilderness? Unbelief. Unbelief beneath that bad behavior, the immorality, the testing God, the grumbling, it was unbelief. So what is unbelief? I mean, this is, this is not just a simple understanding of believe or not believe like we might have. When the Bible speaks of belief in Christ and faith in Christ used synonymously, well, here's what it meant for them. Israel in the wilderness. Unbelief was failure to grasp and take hold of God as He was revealed by His prophets. So Israel in the wilderness, from God, this is who I am, this is what I've done, this is what I'm doing, and this is what I will do. And unbelief is not grasping, is not understanding, is not, and then taking hold of that. Unbelief. For you and me, as it relates to our Christian life, well, unbelief is failure to grasp and take hold of Christ as He is heralded to us in the gospel. That's unbelief. Unbelief is failure to grasp and take hold hold of Christ as he is heralded to us in the gospel. Not my own notion of who Jesus is, not who I want Jesus to be, not what I design Jesus to be, but who Jesus is as he is revealed in the scriptures according to the gospel. So how do you take heed? We're back to the exhortation here. Take heed lest you have a false assurance. You take heed by believing. You take heed by looking to Christ. Believe Jesus. Trust Jesus. Grasp and take hold of Christ as He is heralded in the gospel. Jesus came. He lived. He suffered. He died. He rose again in the place of sinners like you and like me, so that sinners like you and like me could be reconciled to God. Grasp that today. Meditate on that today. Think about that today. Consider that today. Cast your gaze on the truth of the gospel today and then take hold of it. 
Don't hold it at arm's length. Good night. Don't just observe it. Don't just think about it. Take hold of it. Devour it. Digest it. Take it in. Apply it. Consider its implications. Receive the love and affection of God given to you through and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Israel in the wilderness, they did not believe. They did not grasp and take hold of God as He had been revealed to them. Their bad behavior, friends, it was a symptom of a deeper sickness. So look to Jesus. But back to that presumption or despair. Do not look to yourself. Do not look to yourself. Where does assurance come from? Where should you look? Should you look at yourself? Should you look at your circumstances? Should you look at your baptism? Should you look at your good start in the Christian life? Should you look, basically, should you look horizontally or should you look vertically? Should you look up or should you look down? You should look to Christ and believe. Now, some of you get this. You're not presumptuous. You understand the gospel. And you are looking to Christ. But you struggle on the other side. Maybe you despair. Isaiah might call you a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick. Some of you have felt like that or you feel like that now. You see that candle, it's got the tiny little wick, and the, the flame is just barely flickering, right? And you, it looks like any second it's going gonna, it's gonna to go out. I mean, if, you even, if you even breathe on the thing, it's just this faintly burning wick. Well, some of you feel like that in your Christian life. Some of you, after hearing Paul put his finger in your face and saying, run in such a way as win the prize, how you were confronted with that. It's hard to hear. It's good to hear. But it's hard. You have trials in your life. And those trials come with temptations always. That's the worst thing about trials. The worst thing about trials isn't the pain they cause. is that they tempt you to, to not love God. They tempt you to not trust God. They, they tempt you to forsake God. I mean, that's the worst thing about trials. That's the worst thing about sickness. That's the worst thing about suffering. It isn't the pain itself. It's how it jeopardizes, right? Your relationship with God and what it, what it causes you to turn to and what it causes you to doubt and what it causes you to question. And many of you are faced with trials like that even now. You're faced with those temptations. You don't have a false assurance maybe this morning. But you lack true assurance. You know there were many people just like you in Corinth. And Paul spoke to them. And so he speaks to you in verse 13. 
Verse 12, the presumptuous. Verse 13, those who despair. Let me tell you what John Calvin wrote about this last verse. I think he was right on. He said, let others take their own way of interpreting this verse. For my part, I am of opinion that it was intended for their consolation, lest on hearing of such appalling instances of the wrath of God, which we just heard in the text, as he had previously related, they should feel discouraged, being overpowered with alarm. I think that's right. So Paul writes verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It is encouraging, isn't it, to know that this thing that threatens to ruin me has threatened to ruin others and didn't. It's encouraging. You know this when you've gone through a very unusual trial and the help you felt and the camaraderie you felt when you talked to another Christian and they had this in common with you. They had suffered or were suffering in the same way. Well, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is not picking on you. Here's the root of the encouragement. God is faithful. I don't know about you. I'm so glad that this verse doesn't say something like, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You better be faithful. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not riding on you. This thing's not dependent on you. If it is, you're, you're sunk. If it is, you're, you're done. You're dead in the water. You're finished. You're out. Game over. God is faithful. There's a reason we don't sing about our faithfulness. We sing about God's faithfulness. There's a reason when we sing, we don't need to be reminded of the good things that we've done or that we're going to do, but of what God has done. We sing about God's track record. We sing about God's track record because He's immutable. He will never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's undefeated. Never have a loss. Always wins. God is faithful, and He, so what does that faithful mean to you right now? It means that He will not let you be tempted. You're tempted right now. He will not let you 
He has you. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, which he has given you. He will not let this overtake you. He will not let this be the end of you. But with the temptation, and I know it's hard, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Second Peter 2.9 The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That's in his wheelhouse. 1 Corinthians 1.9, the beginning of this letter. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So at the end of the day, what Paul is saying here is rather than presumption, rather than despair, how about trust? Look to Jesus. Anthony Thistleton wrote, The promises of God exclude human presumption and human despair, but invite trust. God's purpose in permitting temptation is in part to enable Christians to grow in trust maturity, and resilience rather than presumption by bearing up under temptation. Verse 13, God promises that He will not allow an unbearable degree of pressure to build up without also providing an exit path alongside the temptation. And so concluding, to the presumptuous, Paul writes, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. To the despairing, he writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember that ship. Well, what's the way off that cliff of presumption? Look to Christ. What's the way off that cliff of despair? Look to Christ. How do we look to Christ? I mean, what does that mean? Maybe some of you know. Maybe some of you don't. Read his word. Look to Christ. Read his word. Pray. Talk to Jesus. Pray. Meditate on the truth of his word. Consider the truth of his word. Study his word. Sing to him his word. Listen to the preaching of his word. Fellowship 
talked to other Christians about his word. This is how you look to Christ. So this is not superficial. You're not looking to Christ if you just read the word, if you just say a prayer, if you just go to church, if you just sing the song, if you just listen to the sermon. In all that, you have to look to Christ. You have to consider. You have to think. You have to meditate. If you just are reading the Bible just to check it off the list and read the Bible, I'd rather you just not read the Bible. But if you're reading it to know God, and if you're reading it to consider, I'm not saying you're always going to get it and you're always going to, but that has to be the goal. I want to know God. I want to understand God. You're looking to Christ, not just looking to words on a page. When you sing these songs, don't just sing the songs. Sing them with meditation in your heart. Consider them. It's one of the reasons we have bulletins and not a projector screen. So you've got all the words right in front of you. Think, consider what we're singing about God that's rooted in His Word. When you listen to preaching, as hard as it might be at times, meditate, consider, search the Scriptures with me or whoever else might be preaching. And who are you looking for? You're looking for Christ. You're looking for Jesus. You're looking to know Him more. You're looking to love Him more. I'll close with just reading Romans 11.20 again. Romans 11.20 They, and that is ancient Israel in the wilderness, this negative example that has been put before us today, they were broken off because of their unbelief. They were not looking to God. They were not looking to Christ. They were not looking up. But you, and this is the same exhortation in our text today, but you stand. Not stand in your works. Not stand in your track record. Not stand in your good behavior and get proud or stand in your bad behavior and get depressed. But you stand fast through faith. What does that mean? It means look to Christ. Well, another way that we look to Christ as Christians is through the Lord's Supper. I mean, we do this in obedience to Jesus because he told us to do it. As a church, we've thought about how does he want us to do this? We do not want to take it lightly. Well, this supper is meant to be a visible, a visible picture every week of what Jesus has done to save his people. And so his people get up and his people take bread and they take juice, symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ by which their salvation was secured. And then as one big, concentrated locally, adopted family, we take that together. As if we're sitting around a dinner table in the household of God. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death this morning. And so if you are here today and you are a Christian, you have turned from your sin. You are looking to Christ. You have trusted in him and him alone for your salvation. And you are committed to Christ and committed to his people as a Christian is because you've been united to Christ and to his people, the head and the body. And so you're committed to a local church, whether it's this one or another one, that faithfully preaches the gospel. If you're a Christian today, you are welcome to take communion with us. We'll have leaders up front who will serve you. We ask you to take the bread and the juice, return to your seat and wait. And we will take it together as the family we are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we turn our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. We remember his death and what it means. And we proclaim his death to one another today. And in this, we look to you, Jesus. We look to you. We are in a, in a visible way, in a way now that reaches our eyes, that reaches our ears, that even reaches our taste buds. We are reminded of the gospel. So help us to remember well and to honor you and glorify you and give you what you deserve even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.